0: We'll hear argument first this morning, number 93117, the United States versus National Treasury Employees Union. Japan. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May I please the Court?
1: This case concerns the constitutionality of the honorarium provision contained in the Federal Ethics Reform Act of 1989, a provision that prohibits federal employees in all three branches of government from accepting a compensation beyond ordinary and necessary travel expenses, for making appearances, giving speeches, or writing articles. Regulations of honoraria of this kind for those same activities have been part of federal statutory law since the mid-1970s. In 1974, Congress imposed a uh, not a total ban, but a monetary limit on the amount that federal employees could uh, uh, could be paid in in honoraria, it was $1,000 per appearance and a $15,000 annual limit. That was later raised to $2,000 per appearance and a $25,000 annual limit. In 1981, the annual limit was removed, but the $2,000 limit remained. It, in the Ethics Reform Act of 1989, Congress decided to. Instead of dealing with this by putting a monetary limit on the amount that a federal employee could could obtain through uh, honoraria for these activities, to eliminate them altogether. It did this on the advice of two federal commissions, one the Quadrennial Commission, which makes uh, periodic reports uh and, uh, and gives advice on federal salaries, and the other an ethics commission, ethics and federal government commission, appointed by President Bush in the late 1980s. Both of those commissions recommended that the policy be changed from a limit on the amount of honoraria to uh, total prohibition of federal employees in all three branches obtaining honoraria. Congress did this as well in light of very strong public concern about the use of honoraria for those activities as a way of steering compensation to federal employees who might have, uh, when, the, when the person steering the compensation might have some reason to want some favors or uh, uh, a special treatment from the federal employees. That had been most prominent uh, with regard to members of Congress and congressional staffs But the commissions uh, recommended, and Congress followed their advice, that it made sense to apply the ban across the board, and not just to limit it to uh, to the legislative branch. Initially, uh, it did not apply to the Senate. Uh, or Senate staff members, and uh, as, uh, in, in, re, in response to that, the Senate decided not to take a pay raise that went to the House at that time. But a couple of years later, uh, the Senate voted itself into the ban it and its staff so that the ban now applies to all federal employees in all three branches of, uh,
2: Mr. of government. Mr. in um, the Definition Section 505-3, which defines the term honorarium. Um, Apparently, it was amended to uh, add some parenthetical material so that it now provides the term honorarium means a payment of money or anything of value for an appearance, speech, or article, parenthesis, including a series of appearances, speeches, or articles if the subject matter is directly related to the individual's official duties, etc. Close parenthesis. I am unclear what the purpose of that amendment was. It seems to provide, as it's written, that a person, uh, that... A person can't get an honorarium for a single speech or article, but can if the person gives several. And I just don't understand what we do with the
1: provision. When I first saw that, it seemed to me that someone had made a typographical error uh, and that the parenthesis should have been moved up several words. But the history of the statute shows that it was, in fact, intended to be exactly as it was written. As originally written, that whole parenthesis
2: was... I think that it was intended to... Uh, as structured with the other provisions of the statute, to prohibit an honorarium if it's a single-speaker article, but to allow it if they are several.
1: Yes, uh, I think that's the clear intention, because at the time in Congress there was a proposal to apply the nexus requirement, that, that is... Uh, which says that the honorarium is prohibited only if it's directly related to the, officials, uh, to the individual's official duties or payment is made because of the individual status with the government. There was a proposal in, in the Senate to apply that to the whole definition, and that failed, and instead this was put in. It okay, seems is counterintuitive.
2: Is that absurd?
1: I don't think it's absurd, although you I admit that get, it is counterintuitive. You can get for a sheep, uh, for a lamb, but not for a sheep. Well, I think the difference is that, first of all, the reason they did that was that the statute is originally written. If you just leave out the parenthesis, you will see how it was originally written. It says, for an appearance, speech, or article. And there was confusion about whether the statute would apply to a series, because it was it was stated in the singular. And this was put in to make it clear that it did apply to a series, because that wasn't clear before. The difference, I think, between a series and an individual speech can be seen if you think about the reason for the prohibition in the first place. The problem with honoraria honoraria, not any payment for anything you do. Moonlighting is not generally prohibited in the federal government. The problem with honoraria is that they can be paid for, ver- for relatively little or no work. You can make an appearance without doing any work. You can just go there. You can make a speech without doing very much work. You can write an article and have somebody else write it for you and put your name on it or circulate the same article again. Those are the things that the statute meant to stop payment for things that could be used to transfer payment to government officials who really didn't earn the money. You could be a consultant without doing uh, any work. Uh, Somebody can pay you money as a consultant. There's no question of that, Justice Scalia, and I think it would be possible for Congress to have broadened this and made it a much broader ban on lots of other outside compensation. A I question
3: think Congress, is whether it's rational, if it if it just selects one way in which you can get paid for doing nothing, and does not select any of the other ways in which you can get paid for doing
1: nothing. Ordinarily, uh, Congress does not have to deal with all problems. It can limit its uh, its uh, prohibitions to the things that have, uh, that have proved to be the biggest problem.
4: Mr. I think on the subject of doing something. I know there was a time when lawyers were paid by the word, but a great man said, it takes time to write it short. And this notion that many words, spreading it out into a series, is somehow um, a guarantee that there is more work that will be done.
5: It is
1: Obviously not an absolute guarantee. This is a broad, prophylactic statute. The lines are not absolutely precise. If this were a statute dealing with a prohibition on speech rather than merely a prohibition on payment for speech, if this were a statute dealing with people who were not federal employees, that kind of grossness of the statute, I think, would pretty might, clearly might not, make it
0: unconstitutional. Might not the parenthetical material that we've been discussing, Mr. Benner, uh, have been intended to allow uh, someone to teach a course
1: that's one of the functions that, uh, that's one of the functions that it serves, and I think that 's a good example of the kind of thing which is not likely to produce a payment made to curry favour with a federal employee and is much more likely to be made because of some real value that the person has given it 's hard to teach a whole course and not do any work it 's a lot easier to give a single speech. These are not perfect lines. It is obvious that a speech can, 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 can reflect a lot of work, and a series of speeches, the uh, Office of Government Ethics has interpreted series to mean three. Uh, certainly, you could do three speeches without doing a tremendous amount of work. But what Congress was trying to do here, and I think it's important to bear that in mind, is not to be overbroad. It wanted to preserve, as much as possible, Without, uh, without casting doubt on the integrity of the federal service, it wanted to preserve as much as possible the opportunity to earn some money on the side. Well,
2: Mr. Bender, this, th- it, it would make a lot more sense if the opening of the parenthesis were inserted just before it and after series of appearances, speeches, or articles. Then it would be clear that honorarium means payment, of money or anything of value for an appearance, speech or article or a series of appearances, speeches, and articles, if the subject matter is directly
1: related. I agree with you, Justice O'Connor. If I were doing it, that's what I would have done. And many people in Congress wanted to do that. Well, but maybe the question it was just a drafting
2: error. <clears> they <throat> just put the parenthesis in the wrong
1: place. The legislative history, I think, makes it clear that it wasn't just a drafting error because, as I said, there was a proposal to add that nexus limitation to the whole thing, and that proposal failed, and this proposal passed. The issue is not what you or I think would make more sense. The issue is whether what Congress has done is unconstitutional. But
6: it does present you with a different problem here, and that is part of your argument for sustaining the breadth of the ban uh, is the difficulty in in line drawing. If you were to have a narrower ban, and yet... Uh, here is an example in which you've got to do some line-drawing, in which Congress, in effect, is saying, yes, we can draw lines if we want to, because there, there is a germaneness requirement in,
1: uh, in, the, or,
0: series. in the series.
1: yeah, yeah. And uh, I think the, the reason for that, or the explanation for that, might well be that there are many less cases where people do a series, for example. Some people teach courses, but there aren't very many of those. And therefore, it's possible for the ethics officials who have to administer this to deal with that small number of cases. Well, I, Senator, I can
4: could you explain on the question of, of exceptions why one appearance or one writing is okay if you are a faculty or to your student of a military school? What was the basis for allowing...
1: I believe it was Congress wanted to make the exception for the military, and I think it had to do with, I can explain this much more easily for the faculty than the students. The faculty of military academies wanted to be considered on the same plane, and I think they should be considered on the same plane, as faculty at other institutions, and to say that they could not make uh, speeches for compensation, the way other faculty members do, treats them as not really like regular faculty members. I think that was the reason for doing and it. And
4: the students,
1: I, I, I have no explanation for uh, for the students. Uh, Congress decided to make the exception, but I think. Here, there are things that will occur to all of us, and when you read the regulations, you'll see other things that occur to you. Fiction, for example, is, the regulations say, is not covered by this. Uh, poems are not covered by this. There are things that seem to be irrational, but if you think of it from the point of view of administrability, I think the rationality becomes a little clearer. The problem with uh, a single speech And and applying a nexus requirement is you have to know what's in the speech. The ethics official, for example, everyone would agree that if the speech is directly connected to the work of the person, then Congress may ban it. But if it's a series,
2: the statute requires that evaluation. Right, but with a series, it just doesn't make
1: sense. I think with a series, it's easier to know what the subject matter is. For example, in Chief Justice Rehnquist's example of someone teaching a course, the course will have a name, the course will have a description, the university will require the course to be tailored to the name and the description, so you can tell, I think more easily with a series, you can tell whether or not the subject Matter is a problem. Uh, and also, I think the intention was to permit teaching because Congress probably thought that teaching by some federal officials was something that was very strongly in the public but interest. It's
2: limited to teaching, it doesn't even say teaching.
1: Right. And, and again, it's blunter than it might be. The question for the court is whether that bluntness, there's no question that I think, uh, I think it's common ground both with the Court of Appeals and with respondents, that there is a core of activity to which this statute plainly constitutionally applies. If a member of the Solicitor General's can office... You to- something to me. I really have to say I'm kind of puzzled about the, the reason why the
7: content of the speech or writing makes any difference at all. If you want to curry favor with someone by paying them something that they haven't really earned, what difference does it make whether they write a lyric poem, a mystery story, or talk about what they do every day at the office?
1: The- Currying favor is one of the problems, but there are others. For example, suppose a member of the uh, of the Solicitor General's office was asked to go to a law firm and uh, give a talk about the tips on arguing before the Supreme Court uh, sharing your your experience. The problem with that kind of thing is the people who can pay for that information, gleaned or amassed as part of one's federal employment, can get information from a federal officer that people who can't pay for it can't get. Uh, you could have a doctor who worked at MIH uh, giving lectures about the work he does to drug companies or insurance companies about the work he does. And that information just goes to those people. So I think to have a federal employee be paid for talking about the work the federal employee does raises a different concern, which is that people who are able to pay for it shouldn't be able to get information from federal employees that people who can't pay for it
7: can't do. you agree that, them. insofar as you're concerned with corruption, the subject matter doesn't make any difference?
1: I agree with that. Right.
6: Uh, the theory of federal employees, shouldn't be able to publish a book? The only people who can get the the information for the book are those who can force
1: out the point. There's a balance I think that Congress is drawing and saying that a book is likely to be so valuable that we want to permit people to do it, and a book is easier to police because it's a public thing that is published and can be seen and can be looked at by an ethics official uh, to see whether there's anything in the book that compromises uh, the the federal official, whereas speeches are evanescent, they're gone, does a federal ethics official have to go to the speech? An appearance is even harder to to judge. And even uh, with regard, for example, if somebody makes a speech uh, at a garden club uh, to talk about how to grow roses, and the person who does that is a lawyer in the Department of Justice, that seems perfectly innocent. But maybe the head of the Speaker's Bureau of the Garden Club has a case before that lawyer. How in the world would the federal ethics official ever know that? And I think Senator, it's
4: the in, the, in the event that your uh, main argument doesn't prevail, may I ask what you think of the Silverman solution by way of a remedy? which would, in effect, be changing the place of the open parence.
1: I think that or something very similar to it is the correct solution. If the court feels that a Congress did not have the right to write a broad prophylactic statute here and that the extension to honoraria that have no nexus is unconstitutional, then the right remedy is to say that the statute cannot be applied to those honoraria. rather than... the answer to
5: that question, whether or not Congress has the constitutional authority to do this, turn in part, or in large part, on an assessment, either by us or by the Congress, as to how often these speeches do in fact implicate the interest that the government is, is wishing to, to, to vindicate and to protect?
1: To some extent, I think it does.
5: Uh, if uh, what, what, and what, what kind of empirical data do we have to, to make that assessment, or, or did Congress have to make it? I think Congress has
1: no formal empirical data, but its understanding of the way federal government works and what federal employees do, and I, that's what you have to what you have to to use as well. I think because it's so hard to know the facts, there deference to Congress is
5: appropriate. If if it, if. It, if We thought, or the Congress thought, that the improper kind of speaking takes place only 5 percent of the time. Would that have been enough to sustain the statute?
1: I I think that would be very doubtful, but I'm, I'm almost positive that those would not be the facts here. There are people who have hobbies, and there are people who make some money on their hobbies by giving speeches or writing articles, but I think it is almost worthy of judicial notice, that is much, much more likely that people will speak about their work, the things that they do for most of their time, uh, and that the dangers of permitting honoraria generally are much more uh, federal employees who will be paid to speak about their work, be paid to speak about the things that they work on, than things that uh,
5: that are just When we're making word. this assessment and this evaluation, Since speech is involved, is there some heightened form of scrutiny?
1: There is certainly some heightened form of scrutiny, but I think two things, uh, and as I said before, I think if this statute were a prohibition uh, on conduct of non-government employees, or even perhaps a prohibition on conduct of government employees, the answer might be different, but here I think two factors which go Uh, to uh, uh, to permitting Congress to do this are, one, that this does not prohibit any speech at all. It prohibits compensation for speech, and these are all people who have another job. And so it is... Unlikely in many cases that the compensation will in any sense be necessary to permit them to give the speech. And if it is necessary to permit them to give the speech, that raises other problems. With federal employees dependent upon this kind of outside income, I think Congress could be worried about that. Yes,
7: Mr. Bender, you, do, you would admit, would you not, that the net effect of the statute is to decrease the quantity of speech?
1: I'm sure that that's true, because there are some people who will not do it. Uh, And that is, uh, there's no question about that. I think the closest analogy in this Court's history are the Hatch Act cases, where I think you could similarly say, as we all have said about this, that there are some things that the Hatch Act prohibits that really don't cause any danger at all. But Congress, rather than drawing the lines of which kind of political campaigning caused the problem and in what offices there was political pressure by superiors, on, uh, on inferior people. Uh, instead of drawing those lines, Congress decided that it wanted to ban the whole
8: thing. Well, the Hatch Act, I understand, is an analogy. What about the Son of Sam cases? You're focusing on speeches, but these plaintiffs are not talking about speeches. These plaintiffs are a Nuclear Regulatory Commission attorney who wants to write an article about Russian history, or a labor attorney who wants to write an article about Judaism. So, and these are low-level people often who really aren't, I take it, invited always. They're not politicians. There so are non-political people in the civil service who want to write articles about the Quaker religion or Judaism or the Russian history. If, if a, a triple-axe murderer, I take it, cannot be constitutionally prohibited from selling his story for money, why can a low-level civil servant be constitutionally prohibited from giving a talk about Judaism or Quaker religion or uh, Russian history, writing an article about it which has nothing whatsoever to do uh, with their job before an audience that has nothing to do with their job uh, on their own time. I mean, why does the Constitution seem to apply to the one and not the other? Well, two two things about
1: that, Justice Brewer. One, I don't think the court said in the Son of Sam case that a triple axe murderer
8: could not be prohibited. It said the statute was over. Too broad. broad. So why is that too broad when this one, which says you can't write an article about the Quaker religion and so forth, is not too broad? The court has always given Congress a lot more
1: discretion in dealing with regulating the activities of federal employees, and the Hatch Act case again shows that. You could obviously not prohibit the kind of activity the Hatch Act prohibits for federal employees if you were prohibiting it for people generally. But
8: why is, my question basically is, why is the public interest in taking a GS-14 or 15 civil servant and saying you can't on your own time write an article about Russian history why is the public interest there greater than the public interest in saying to serious criminals you cannot make money out of your story? I don't think it is greater. And a statute greater- that was
1: tailored to the serious criminals would be constitutional. But let's come back to the example of let's come back to the example of the person writing an article.
8: First if that's of all, so, then should this not be tailored in the same way? The statute does
1: not prohibit writing the article. The statute prohibits being paid for it. That may seem totally innocent, and in most cases, and probably overwhelming number of cases, it will be totally innocent. But suppose the article is being paid for by someone who has business before the agency. Uh, then I think it would raise problems. Congress, I think, was worried, and I think it is proper for them to be worried about who was going to supervise that. How will you know that the Speaker Chairman of the Garden Club, who hires a secretary in the Justice Department to give a talk about how to grow roses, does not have business before the Justice Department and wants the secretary to help him uh, get an appointment with some officials? Uh, you could have written a statute which said it turns on that, which would mean that government ethics officials in each agency would have to enforce that. One of the problems that Congress knew about was the unevenness of enforcement of these ethical regulations in different agencies if you permit them to be enforced by the people in the agencies. And Congress thought it was worth And they must have known that they were trenching on some ground where they would be stopping people from speaking, uh, and where there would be no reason for doing that in that particular case. But administrative efficiency... Uh, I think, it. yes, I think that it's, that's a way of saying it in, way, in a way that kind of denigrates it as, as an interest. Uh, I think, our Yes, yeah. it's, uh, I think it's administrative efficiency is a label. There's a reality behind that label.
6: Well, may I ask you the, the, the empirical question on that? What do we know what what is there for us to consult in determining just how much of a burden the reality is I, I have no no doubt in the world that it's going to be harder to administer uh, if if we draw the line on some germaneus criterion but uh, uh, how inefficient is it going to be? What is the administrative burden going to be? I don't quite know how to weight it. It's very difficult, and I think it's because it's very difficult that unless
1: it appears very clearly that Congress weighted incorrectly, the court should defer to Congress's judgment that that's the way to do it. Congress considered putting a nexus, a nexus provision in. It thought about it and decided not to do that. Uh, I think that their knowledge of the federal system, their knowledge, of the, uh, their knowledge of the pressures on employees, and their knowledge of the dangers, and their sense of the public perception of the
6: dangers. But how is, how is that consistent with your concession earlier that there is some element of heightened scrutiny to be applied here? That isn't heightened scrutiny. I mean, that is basically deference if there is any conceivable rational basis I suppose well I think there's there is some heightened scrutiny Uh, it is
1: hard to say exactly what that is I think what is the mechanism
4: for the series is there some screening you have to check that in advance and how much more of a burden would it be if that whatever that mechanism was was simply extended
1: well, it, there would be many, many more cases that would have to be screened. That's one thing, because there are many less series of speeches than there are individual speeches uh, and appearances and, uh, and and articles. And as I said, with a series, it is usually possible to tell the subject matter of the series with some confidence from some written materials. That's much harder to do. With a single speech or a single or a single appearance, so I think the administrative problems would be uh, would be greater. Uh, uh, just one uh, more word about. In response to your question, Justice Justice Souter, I think one way the heightened scrutiny shows up is in the question Justice Kennedy asked about what percentage would have to be overbroad to strike it down. I think that uh, if the statute didn't involve speech and there was any conceivable rational objective that Congress was pursuing, one would uphold it. Here, I think if the court were convinced that 95 percent of the statute's application was on speech, that caused absolutely no danger of a public perception of of lack of integrity, uh, then you would strike it down. Whereas if it weren't speech, then I think you wouldn't strike it down.
6: Um, Shouldn't we we be able to get some sense from prior experience in the agencies uh, of uh, of the amount of screening that would be necessary?
1: Yes. The the problem, though, with that is that the prior experience is very uneven. Some agencies were quite... Strong and concerned about applying these ethics regulations,
6: other agencies are not. Excuse me. The results may have been uneven, but I presume that the number of occasions in which they had to screen uh, was was not a matter of, of judgment. And and if we if we even knew uh, the the amount of screening that had to be done, we would at least have a way of making some kind of guess about the the, the administrative burden. Right. I don't know that there are any figures collected, at least I
1: was not able to get any central figures uh, collected about how many of these requests were made or how much investigation was done at the particular agency level, because the immediate uh, enforcement of this statute is at the agency level. The Office of Government Ethics does not do a comprehensive screening. What I
4: understand you to say, though, is if you're wrong about the constitutionality of this, you would prefer extension of this, it's got to be a screening device, extension of what's done for the series to all of the speeches. To total destruction of the statute. Yeah. It's,
1: it's not that, that the government would prefer it, it's that I think Congress uh, deserves that recognition. It's clear to me that if the Congress overbreadth
3: doctrine doesn't apply to Congress. I mean, I thought of in First Amendment cases, if you're too broad, the whole thing's bad. You're, there's no such thing as overbreadth then. There, what we should the, do in all cases is just cut it
1: back to what would be constitutional. If it was 95% overbroad, or if you couldn't easily separate the constitutional from the unconstitutional applications, then, then I think you might strike the Statue down, but here you it's can quite usually easy.
3: easily separated. I don't think that's usually a problem. Sometimes well, it's, I don't uh, see how this differs from any normal overbreadth. Well, in, in the Court, maybe, maybe the overbreadth doctrine is no good. Uh, maybe we should reconsider. The Court that. has said that, but it seems to me inconsistent with that to say uh, just you know, just narrow it as much as is needed to make it constitutional.
1: The Court has said uh, repeatedly since Broderick that it will use the overbreadth doctrine only, only as a last resort. That is very strong medicine to be reserved for very unusual cases. This Court, for example, in holding that the, uh, the statute re- is where it is substantially overbroad. That's
3: the issue we were directing ourselves to. Don't you think that if this is overbroad, it is substantially overbroad if it covers not just speeches related to, to the work, but all speeches? I, I think that's substantial overbroad.
1: Well, we was substantial in, in uh, comparison to the part of the statute that is constitutional. No, I don't think it is substantial. I would guess that there is a much smaller number of these speeches made on topics that have nothing to do with the person's work, then there would be speeches made uh, for compensation on topics that have something to do with the person's work. So I don't think it's substantial in that sense. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time, if
0: I may. Very well, Mr. Bender. Uh, Ms. Joe Duden. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it
9: please the Court. In its brief, the government has offered three main justifications for the statute. Uh, It has said that it is needed to guard against the appearance of impropriety. It has argued that this is a needed prophylactic measure, and it has also said that there are administrative reasons that justify the existence of the statute. Uh, Much of the discussion this morning has focused on the last justification. If I understand the government correctly, it is agreeing uh, that there is no appearance of impropriety, when a career employee writes or speaks about something that has no connection to his job and where the payor has no interest pending before the government. But what the Justice Department seems to argue this morning is that even if that's the case, it's just too hard to enforce a nexus requirement. And with all respect to the Justice Department, I believe that that argument is just a bit thin Uh, As we know, as Justice O'Connor has pointed out, the Achilles heel in each of the, with with respect to each of the justifications here, is the fact that an employee can receive compensation if he or she writes a series of articles. And, of course, what that means with respect to the statute is you can't be paid if you write one or two articles, but if you repackage it as three or more, then you can be paid, provided there is no nexus to employment. It seems to us that the fact that there is a nexus test written right in the statute is very good evidence that a nexus test is eminently manageable. The question was raised earlier, what concrete experience do we have as to how much of a burden it is to administer a nexus requirement? Well, we would point uh, point the court uh, to a report that the government believes, at least in its brief supports its position. And I'm speaking here about the GAO report, uh, which of course covered a three-year period and examined uh, outside activities that were engaged in by federal employees. And if I read the report correctly and added up the the numbers correctly, there were about 2,500 employees who had received approval to engage in outside activities. The report identifies two instances where there were arguable improprieties with respect to speaking activities. So in essence, what the report has said is that out of 2,500 occasions, there were two concrete instances of uh, an, arguable, an arguable abuse. And of course...
0: Does uh, the, the report, Mr. O'Dooghue, consider a simply appearances as well as speeches or articles? The, re- the report is very wide-ranging.
9: It, it apparently considered... Uh, all kinds of outside act- activities. the focus was on consulting and speech activities mr o uh, 'on what, what troubles me about your proposal that it just be limited to uh, to uh, things
3: that have what you call a nexus is uh, is uh that that's a different problem from what con- i mean that that's a, that's a good idea it might be a nice statute but there are two really quite separate problems one is the problem of an employee trading on on the expertise he's acquired in the government that is one problem a quite separate problem is the problem of the employee getting paid by someone outside the government for talking about you know really for uh, the benefit that he could do to somebody outside the government, but disguising it under, uh, you know, under a speech or under whatever. It's usually disguised under a speech, is what the government says. And therefore, Congress chose to, to address that. It's a totally separate problem from the problem of trading on your, on your government ex- expertness. So why should we substitute the, the, the one statute for the other? It's a different statute.
9: Well, it would seem, though, that that same rationale would apply to the situation of uh, where someone gave a series of speeches or a series of articles. It's not clear to me why that same notion that uh, when a federal employee uh, speaks about something that has nothing to do with his job uh, would not also raise that same concern in that situation.
0: Well, how about the Solicitor General's answer that... uh with a series of articles, or perhaps with, with with a book, you have some more guarantee of authenticity. Uh, it's it's easier to trace uh, if you have a series of articles or it's a, a course. It's easier to spot what the course was about.
9: As I understand the the government's argument, it is suggesting that uh, the added volume of material somehow makes it easier to determine a nexus. And I think, as Justice Ginsburg noted uh, earlier, that, I think, lacks a rational basis because someone could easily write a very long, very voluminous single article with ample material in it. Someone could write, on the other hand, three very short articles. It seems to me that it would be far easier to determine whether there was a nexus in the former instance as opposed to the latter. So we do not believe that that is a viable argument for the government well, this, to make. It.
5: Is, is it your position that the statute would be more defensible if the series uh, exception were not in the statute, and there was just a, a blanket prohibition whether or not it was a series?
9: No. Of course, when we, when we first brought the, the lawsuit, the series exception was not in the statute. Uh, our main contention has been that- Which, be which the, statute is the more defensible? I beg your pardon, Your Honor.
5: Which statute is the more defensible from the government standpoint?
9: Uh, I I think that they they are equally indefensible. But I think that the fact that there there is this exception now for a series, that that raises a question about the credibility for limiting payment in the first instance.
4: Would you say a statute with that qualification, the series nexus tests, just extended across the board that such a statute would be constitutional?
9: We have never questioned that if there was a nexus requirement in the statute that applied across the board, that that would be a constitutional statute.
4: So then you would have no objection to the solution that Judge Silberman proposed in the D.C. circuit?
9: Quite frankly, Your Honor, uh, as a practical matter, no. We would have no objection to that whatsoever. Why is that statute
3: constitutional? I mean, there are a lot of times that, that people could write... Uh, You know, the the knowledge that they bear uh, after 30 years of work in the government relates to one field. They want to write an article about that one field. Why shouldn't they be able to write that article? What's the risk?
9: Well, I think that the way the nexus test works, the the one that is written in the statute, is that uh, you are not allowed to be paid if there is a direct nexus. So it may well be that there are circumstances where somebody is writing generally, about something that he has worked on where it might be uh, appropriate for that person to engage in that kind of activity. But I think the obvious concern is that if you're writing about something uh, that uh, you learned about as a result of your government position, then that does at least arguably create the appearance that you are trading on your job. And and therefore, we believe that a nexus test uh, is an appropriate test. Uh, for Congress to have written into the statute. Trade, trading on the job in
5: the sense that uh, what you have learned uh, on, on the job, you're profiting
9: from? That's right. Using your public office for private gain is the, is,
0: is the notion. But if you do it on your own time, uh, well, why shouldn't you be allowed to do that on, under your theory? Uh, for the very reason that
9: I just gave. The fact that you're doing it on your own time doesn't obviate the fact that you are trading on your government position that you're using something that you learned as a as a, uh, as a result of your Why government it, job and you, wait you
7: retire and then write your right. memoirs to you do that of general grant did that I mean what's what's wrong with that I must confess
9: uh, I obviously the, the statute only governs a situation where you are a current employee. I think that once you've retired, I think different different considerations come into play. Well, suppose you had a statute which forbade use of what you
7: learned as an employee in either event, and in neither case does it interfere with your current employment, as
9: I understand it. It's hypothetical. That's right. But I think as long as. It's an appearance problem. It's an appearance problem. As long as you're on the government payroll, I think that it would be. It's an, appearance. Sure it's an appearance I've been a judge for something like 12 years now, and I've learned a lot of
3: law there, and now and then I talk about the law. And that's, that's right. Some of the things I know about the law I've learned in these 12 years. That's, but you that's, don't talk about your cases, That's a wicked you?
9: appearance. You don't talk about your cases or the cases no, that are pending before you? No, I talk about
3: cases that are pending.
9: I've, I've, I've seen your honor speak I talk there. about past cases sometimes. Very carefully, though.
3: <laughs> well, I, I hope so. I hope so. No, but you're not concerned with
7: revealing confidential information. That We're assuming I everything beg you, pardon, is your in Honor. the public domain that, he's, that this person is talking about. You're not talking about revealing government secrets or judicial secrets. It might be a heart surgeon out of Bethesda. You had a lot of cases and learned a lot about it. You want to give lectures to heart surgeons. That's right. And I think well, that, that not as a part... what's wrong with
9: it? I, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. In fact... Uh, we see from the current regime and from the prior, the prior regime of government regulations, when a government employee, I suppose including a justice of the Supreme Court, speaks generally about the issues before him, that has been deemed properly not to create the appearance of impropriety.
5: I'd like to know what your position would be if Congress passed a statute, a hypothetical, that for a period of ten years after you leave the government, you may not write about what you learned at the agency.
9: I think that that uh, would be a tougher case for us to to challenge. A 10-year period would seem to be a long period of time. A lot, of course, I think would also depend on on the category of the employee that the law addressed. Uh, There is a well-recognized interest in uh, avoiding this syndrome of the revolving door where people take advantage uh, of what they learned as a result of serving in the government, particularly at a high level of the government. Uh, So I think that there's an arguable interest in preventing that to a certain degree. Whether 10 years is too onerous or not, I think uh, it would depend on how the interest was actually articulated and what kind of problem was actually demonstrated. I'm
8: I'm still, my basic question is what the standard is. I mean, I might uh, say, look, these are not political people. These are civil servants. They don't go have thousands of freebies thrown at them. They want to write articles about their job or not about their job on their own time. Uh, What standard do we apply? If I I might think, look, this is good that they write about their work, not bad. It educates people, Uh, but Congress might decide differently. I referred to the Son of Sam statute because I wonder if that isn't the appropriate test, that what you are going to say Congress can or cannot pay. Congress can't, it, the state can't tell, it's overly broad. you remember that? I mean, if you're not, do you see what I'm thinking? Is there an analogy?
9: Well, there certainly is an analogy uh, to the Simon and Schuster case, the Son of mm-hmm. Sam statute. And the the principal analogy that it provides to us in this case is that the court has recognized that a law that imposes a financial disincentive like the honoraria Statute, like the Son of Stam Statute, that that demonstrates that, contrary to what the government has argued, that the law is a direct and substantial burden on speech. That is the main reason that we cite to the Simon and Schuster case. Uh, If Your Honor is asking me what is the standard of scrutiny that should apply, uh, we believe that the Court of Appeals uh, got it exactly right when it said that the test here is whether or not the law limits speech in a way that goes beyond what is reasonably necessary to secure the government's interest. And, of course, that formulation is essentially that which is found uh, in Brown versus Klein's, and the Court, of Appeals, the Court of Appeals recognized that the starting point with respect to the proper standard uh, is, of course, this Court's decision in Pickering where the basic general question is whether the, uh, the government's interest in efficiency outweighs the employee's interest in speaking freely on matters of public concern. That's a heightened scrutiny
3: test that you're talking about. Normally, of course, we just say ask whether it has a reasonable basis, and we don't presume to weigh uh, on our own whether it's more than is reasonably
9: necessary, right? But it seems I, I, I don't believe that the Brown versus Glein's formulation is a heightened scrutiny test. I think what it suggests is that... When, when we review a normal statute, do we, do we inquire whether the statute is reasonably necessary oh, no. to achieve its objective no, or we, it's heightened scrutiny? Yes, outside the public employee context, yes, it would be heightened scrutiny. But we're, but we're not arguing for heightened scrutiny here. We're, what we're seeking here is for the court to examine whether or not there is some sort of reasonable fit here between the interests that the government articulates and the means that Congress has chosen to address that issue. Well, I consider that heightened scrutiny,
3: uh, you know, more than what the the Equal Protection Clause would normally require,
9: uh, which is just a rational basis for the law. That's right, Your Honor, but of course we're talking here about a First Amendment issue, Uh, This is not an equal protection case. We're also talking about a public employment issue where where the government is acting as
3: employer, not just as governor.
9: I don't don't think that we're taking issue in any way with this court's notion that uh, its cases have traditionally accorded deference to the government employer. But when you read cases like uh, Pickering and Connick and Rankin, they all make very clear that where the...
3: Are they cases that dealt with a government-wide statute as opposed to uh, the government moving against an individual on the basis of some particular content
9: to the speech that that individual made? I believe those cases purport to establish a general standard that applies to assessing when a limitation on public employee speech is justified. And what they say is that where the speech activity in question Uh, substantially involves a matter of public concern, then the government has to make some sort of meaningful showing that its interest is threatened in the absence of that limitation. Don't you think there might be a difference when you're
3: moving against an individual employee as opposed to a general law like uh, like the Hatch Act? Do you think we applied heightened scrutiny, really, to the Hatch Act? No,
9: and I I emphasize again uh, that we are not arguing in favor of what we would term to be a heightened standard of scrutiny. I'm glad you brought you, the Hatch Do you
4: see no difference between the approach the court took in Mitchell the first time it examined the Hatch Act and let it carry it the second time?
9: I believe that there is a difference between the approach the court used in Mitchell, which is similar to a rational basis test, and what it has come to apply. Uh, I think that, as the court pointed out in Connick, the Mitchell case, the rationale, was grounded on this notion that public employees could be required to surrender their constitutional rights when they came to work for the government. Uh, this court has long rejected that notion. Uh, it made that clear, for example, in Shelton v. Tucker, where the court looked at uh, a statute that limited uh, the, the First Amendment rights of public employees. What does that mean? That you, you can't stop
3: uh, public employees from engaging in political campaigns? No, Your Honor. Well, we are then saying... what does what you say mean? It means nothing. You say you can't require them to give up their constitutional rights. That is a constitutional right to engage in political campaigns, certainly a very important one, isn't it? It is. Can I think- you require federal employees to give it up as a condition of their employment? Yes. Okay. Therefore, what you said is simply wrong. You no. can, indeed, <laughs> require that- people to give up constitutional rights as a condition of federal employment. Is that true or false?
9: Only where there has been a showing that there are government interests that are actually at stake. Let's take a look at the Hatch Act Different cases. point. You can, but, not, but there has to be a good reason for it. We're, we're happy to live with that formulation, Your Honor, that there has to be a good reason for it. And we think that the Hatch Act cases illustrate a circumstance where there was a good uh, reason for a prophylactic measure in that case, because, as the court pointed out in letter carriers, uh, there was a well-documented history going all the way back to the days of Thomas Jefferson, that when government employees engaged in political activities, that problems ensued. And yes, but on- there
5: you see the nexus between the evil prohibited and the statutory remedy was, was, was existent. It was extant. It was there. Exactly. Uh, here we're asking whether or not there should be heightened scrutiny in order to compel the government to, to justify what its interest is as to each speech. And it seems to me that that does require heightened scrutiny. I'm, I'm quite surprised you say that no heightened scrutiny is required. Well, when and in and, and, and Connick, I, 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 because you're going to be discussing this case as well, Connick was a case, and, and that line of cases, in which the speech was directly linked by the public to the employment, which is not the case here. We have cases of people writing about
9: nothing whatever to do with the government, and you say there's no heightened scrutiny? Well, we would welcome the uh, court to apply a a higher standard of scrutiny than it it has applied in cases like Connick. We're not suggesting that. The only thing that I'm trying to accomplish here is to assure the court that we're not asking for the court to apply a strict scrutiny test in every government employee case. But this court has indicated and I think maybe this is the point of Your Honor's question, where the government employee is speaking on something where there's essentially really no connection to his job, where he's writing an article about dance or about music. Then, as this court pointed out in Pickering, he is to be treated as a member of the general public. And in that situation, uh, obviously, uh, the court is required to take a very close look at the justifications that the government has offered in support of the statute.
2: This is a class action, is it not?
9: Yes, it is, Justice O'Connor.
2: And the class includes people um, in various categories, including those who are trying to trade on their job and who want to talk about... Uh, something that directly relates to their job and so forth. I mean, the class includes everybody, as I understand.
9: The class does include everybody, but the way the class was defined, uh, it was defined in a way to make clear that what people want to be able to do is to engage in speech activities in the same way that they did before the honoraria statute was you imposed. a
4: certification that describes the class?
9: Uh, yes, we do, Your Honor. It, and by reference, it refers uh, to laws that were in place before the honoraria statute was passed. And, of course, as the Court of Appeals uh, opinion points out, before the statute was uh, in place, there was a nexus, there was a nexus test uh, pursuant to government-wide regulation that uh, could not be violated if an employee wanted to write or to speak Uh, for pay, and that is to say an employee couldn't receive payment uh, if the invitation were extended because of his government status, or if the payor had an interest that might be affected
0: uh, by the uh, employee's performance of his job. Uh, How was it determined whether or not the invitation was extended because of the government status? Uh,
9: That was done on a a case-by-case basis. who, Who did it? Well, in many situations, and this is typical, uh, we think of uh, of everybody at the IRS, for example, and this point is is made in our brief, and it's also illustrated in the joint appendix. Uh, People who work at many federal agencies, before they can engage in any outside activity, they have to get approval, prior approval, uh, from their agency. And So what someone would do is to say, uh, I'm intending to write an article about music or dance, and the ethics agency at the officer
0: would review that and make sure that uh, there was no ethics problem, and then that activity Did would be approved. Did determine the motivation of the people that was involved were inviting the, the employee?
9: I don't, th- I don't know if the, if the analysis went that deep, but what, what he would do is to look at whether the entity uh, who proposed to make the payment had any matters that were then pending before the agency that could be directly affected
0: by that employee's performance. Was it this process that was criticized in the Commission reports? Uh,
9: It was this process that was criticized to some degree in the GAO report that I mentioned earlier, and that is the report that, as I mentioned, found two instances of impropriety out of 2,500 employees uh, who had been approved to engage in outside activities. I think it's also important to point out that the GAO report, after it made its study, its conclusion was not that there be a broad ban with respect to all outside activities. The recommendation that it made uh, was that enforcement be tightened up, made certain recommendations to the Office of Government Ethics, and as the GAO report makes clear, uh, the Office of Government Ethics adopted all of those those
0: recommendations. How about the other commission report, what they did recommend?
9: The other Commission reports, I think you're referring here to the Wilkie Commission report and to the Quadrennial Commission report. Of course, the overriding focus there
0: was on... I asked what they they recommended with respect to this particular thing we're talking about.
9: The uh, Wilkie Commission report recommended uh, a ban on honoraria with respect to all three uh, branches of government. But I think that any analysis of the Wilkie Commission report uh, has to begin with the definition that it had of honoraria. If you look at that report, you'll see that honoraria was defined to refer to compensation that was received for the giving of speeches. And, of course, the Wilkie Commission Report drew on the Quadrennial Commission Report, which emphasized that the focus was on situations where people were giving talks for money before special interest groups. The Wilkie Commission Report actually points out that it did not intend, by the way, to bar compensation uh, where people were engaged in the writing of scholarly articles. And so our point is that when you look at the definition of the Wilkie Commission report of honoraria, when you look at what it said about the writing of, uh, writing of articles, there's simply no foundation there on which the government can build a reasonable case uh, that this law uh, does not go farther than reasonably necessary.
4: Did any of these reports uh, deal with the travel expense side of it at all?
9: I believe that the Wilkie Commission report uh, did recommend an exclusion for travel expenses, Your Honor. I believe it did.
4: But the legislation doesn't have any feeling well, there-
9: or exclusion? Well, the, the legislation says that you can be reimbursed for travel expenses for yourself Uh, And for one relative. And of course, as a practical matter, uh, I think that that underscores once again that this is a a very odd law, at least with respect to career employees, because I think in the real world, uh, career employees are not the beneficiaries of that kind of exclusion. Well, Congress obviously just didn't agree with these reports. I mean, do, do they have to agree with every report that they asked to be
3: done? Maybe the reports were wrong. I, I suppose that, that, that for purely factual material contained in the report, they're worth something. But as to their recommendations, uh, they recommended one thing. Uh, Congress, uh, our elected representatives uh, decided uh, that their judgment was wrong.
9: Well, uh, of course, there's no indication at all in the history or the legislative record that Congress uh, made any such consider judgment and the, the main import the statute of our says that I mean of course it does but I we, we believe that it is very odd for the government to be relying on the Wilkie Commission report and the quadrennial Commission report where in fact those reports do not provide a foundation on which the government may rely it doesn't provide a rationale here uh, for what the government says, or for what Congress did, for that matter.
10: You're just negating their
9: reliance on the report. Yes, Your Honor.
10: Mr. O'Duden. Yes, sir. Do you think that the government could, consistent with the First Amendment, simply ban all moonlighting?
9: I think that that would present a different question. I think it would be a much harder case for us to bring. It's arguable that there may be a due process argument there to be made, depending on, on what the reasons were for the moonlighting ban, but of course... The well, you vis- mentioned
10: earlier that there were 25,000 instances in which permission was granted. 2,500 And the 2, GAO report, sir. Uh, well, that would seem to be a larger problem than the two in which honorariums were involved. Uh, I'm not sure that I understand you your question. You mentioned that there were two, only two instances in which there were problems. There are problems with respect
9: to speeches, Your Honor. That's That's
10: right. right. So there seem to be more instances, and I know from my own limited experience in the executive branch that there were more instances of moonlighting, cab driving, outside practice of law, those sorts of things, as opposed to speeches. That's right. So it would seem to me that the government would have a stronger case for banning moonlighting than it does for speeches at the civil servant level.
9: Arguably. I I don't want to suggest that the GAO report uh, concluded that there was a moonlighting problem in the federal workforce. Uh, But, of course, what we have here is not a statute that is a ban on moonlighting. It is a law that singles out uh, only speech activities. And I think, as this Court's precedent makes quite clear, when a law singles out speech activities, uh, that, by definition, uh, makes it suspect. Unless there are further questions.
10: But would it, would it have a, would you have a First Amendment problem with a total ban on Moonlight?
9: I, I think that would be a, a difficult argument to make because the court's decisions indicate that laws of general applicability uh, do not lend themselves, at least not very readily,
10: to a First Amendment challenge. And you, but it would have no less of an effect on speech, on honorariums than the current law.
9: Uh, The problem, uh, again, is that a law like that
10: uh, would not be singling out speech. I think that the court is Would there be a different effect on speeches by federal employees from this law? If it was a flat-out moonlighting ban? This law simply says you can't get paid for speeches and articles, right? That's right. A total ban on moonlighting simply says, with respect to this class of plaintiffs, that you can't get paid for speeches and articles. Or anything else. So is there a different impact? No, there is no different impact. So the government can solve its First Amendment problem simply by banning all moonlighting?
9: Perhaps. I think that there's some suggestion maybe from this court's earlier president, the Murdoch case, that you might be able to make a First Amendment challenge. But again, this court has treated in a special way, statutes that single out speech activities. We've seen it do so in cases like Minneapolis Star and, uh, the, of course, the Arkansas Writers Project. So it is no defense for the government to say that it could pass a moonlighting statute because that is not what it has done here.
0: Thank you very much for your time. Very well, Mr. O'Dooghue. Uh, Mr. Bender, you have one minute remaining. <laughs> With regard to the commission reports, on page
1: 8 of our reply brief, we quote uh, paragraph from both of the Commission reports, which says that honoraria should be defined so as to close present and potential loopholes. They mentioned more loopholes there than Congress decided to close, but I think the spirit of those reports was the prophylactic spirit that the statute has. With regard to the standards... Were were
3: those reports addressed just to executive branch? uh,
1: No. Those
3: were addressed to all three branches. Well, aren't they? Quite different problems uh, with respect to uh, the legislative branch and, and, and perhaps the judicial branch than there is with respect to the executive branch.
10: I think if you're Simply thinking, at the, in the
3: level of the officials involved, Well,
1: what? but there are people who work in the legislative branch who are at the lowest levels and people who work in the judicial branch, there are secretaries and file clerks uh, who work there. and there are people who work in the executive branch at the highest levels where I think the problems are the same. So I don't think there's a major difference there. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bender. The case is submitted.